Broadcasting from the historic Hayburn Building in downtown Louisville, it's time for Single Payer Radio, a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program, and we're a longstanding community partner with Forward Radio. We invite you also to get your group to uh, join Forward Radio as a community partner. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. The views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the speakers and not the station. And speaking of the station, Forward Radio is Louisville's all-volunteer progressive community radio station, and we're a Pacifica affiliate. Join us. And before we get into the show, first a reminder to get your marching shoes on. Louisville and 33 other cities across the country will march for Medicare for All this Saturday morning, July 24th. Uh, we'll start at 11 a.m. We're going to meet down at the Mazzoli Federal Building there at 7th and Chestnut. There will be a few speakers, some music, refreshments. We're going to celebrate Medicare's 56th birthday. Please join us. And for more information about that march and other info from Kentuckians for single-payer health care, go to kyhealthcare.org or check us out on Facebook. Now, we'll be joined by Drs. Mike Flynn, Gene Shively. Dr. Flynn? Mark, <clears throat> nice to be here. Good to see you again. Uh, let me begin with uh, a the first disclaimer that uh, uh, any comments I made or views I express here represent my personal views and do not <clears throat> represent the views of the University of Louisville or the Department of Surgery. Uh, my comments are my personal views and do not represent the uh, Taylor Regional Hospital nor the University of Louisville. And I also want to uh, caution you that uh, what we say may not be actual facts because <laughs> uh, th this uh, whole subject is extremely complicated and it changes frequently and it's different in different states. So, uh, uh, and in my studying of this, I, I sometimes became uh, very, very confused about what's what but anyway we're going to attempt to discuss uh, Medicaid and try to give you an overview of what Medicaid's for and at least how it's helping the state of Kentucky there are some states that did not go with the Medicaid expansion and I, they have a lot of citizens who are not covered Medicaid was actually created the same year that Medicare was created in 1965, Lyndon Banks Johnson, uh, it was his project. Uh, Johnson, contrary to some opinion, really had a heart uh, f for uh, integration and uh, racial justice and for the poor. And that all started in Texas when he finished college and was teaching in a small town where there were a lot of uh, poor people. And I remember 
1965, they had a picture of him in eastern Kentucky sitting on a porch in a rocking chair, and that's when Medicare started. Now, Medicare is different than Medicaid. They were both started at the same time, but uh, Medicare was started for the elderly, those 65 and above, and it was kind of an old age insurance policy. Now, you got to remember that a lot of people didn't make it to age 65 in those days, so it was kind of easy to uh, pay for it. Medi Medicaid, on the other hand, was started for low-income uh, people, people below a certain level. And right now, it's 133% of the federal poverty level, and it includes adults, children, pregnant women, the elderly adults, and, and people with uh, severe uh, disabilities. Uh, it's interesting that half of the deliveries in the United States are covered uh, by Medicaid. Medicaid is administered by the states, but the federal government has rules which you have to follow, but each state is different, and that makes it uh, uh, very difficult uh, uh, to follow. It depends on which state you're in. Uh, and there are approximately uh, 74 million people who are covered under Medicaid. I've seen numbers up to uh, 85 million, but it's a significant number of people who are now uh, covered uh, uh, by uh, Medicaid. Uh, the, the states are responsible for uh, administering the program, and they can actually make up some of their own rules, and they can go after different waivers. The federal government has different waivers. For, for example, in the last uh, administration, uh, there was a plan that if anyone was able-bodied, that they had to, to work or be going to college or some type of school in order to be eligible for uh, Medicaid. Um, the uh, Another interesting thing that's happened in the last few years with the Medicaid expansion, we now have good evidence that it's increased the health of the people who are on Medicaid. Uh, and the University of Louisville and the University of Kentucky have done studies that show that patients uh, who are, are need colonoscopy for prevention of uh, colon cancer and patients who need mammograms uh, for prevention of breast cancer, that since the expansion of um, Medicaid, the actual death rate from colon cancer and breast cancer has gone down, and we picked up these type of cancers uh, in a uh, in an earlier uh, stage. The federal government uh, matches most of the money. It also depends on which state you're in. But the minimum is 50%, and the maximum is 83%. Again, I'm not 100% sure of this, but I think, and we're going to have to get some more expertise on this, but I think that number is going to go up to 90%. Uh, 
Uh, Mike, do you know uh, any information about the uh, uh, how much the federal government is going to put into Medicaid? Yeah, Gene, let, let me let me make that. I want to do make a second disclaimer before making any more comments. Um, uh, this, as you mentioned, and I, I agree, this is incredibly uh, complicated. And I was in clinical practice, uh, private practice, and academics for over 50 years. And, uh, um, you know, this started in 1965, and I started in 1971. <clears throat> and through all, all that time, I really never had to deal with uh, Medicaid. I knew it was there. I knew that uh, we had patients that came into whichever practice I happened to be in at the time. But there was always somebody in the office that managed all this. And when I started to, as you, as you mentioned, started to look up the, the stuff that we were learning about this, the complexity is, is remarkable. Uh, so the disclaimer is, and I would challenge any listeners, as you've said earlier, we, we, we may not have all the facts. And that if we say something, or I say something, that doesn't seem to make sense or somebody disagree with me, I would challenge you to go to an assortment of really good uh, references and, and uh, you know, just get a look, look into the references and, and, and decide for yourselves. So, and let me just, a couple of examples. I mean, you can go to Medicaid.gov, uh, Benefits.gov, um, Kaiser Health News is a, is a good organization. It is not part of Kaiser Permanente, a, a, a subsidiary. It's a separate organization. And I learned a lot from getting on my computer and, and getting on uh, Firefox or Google and, and, and just putting in uh, Medicaid podcasts. And one of the better ones was a podcast called Mostly Medicaid. So having, <clears throat> having gotten that, that out of the way, uh, the way I understand the funding is that um, the federal government provides a certain amount of funds, and they also have a, have a, a set of uh, rules, guidelines, standards that the states have to comply with. And having done that, then the states are, uh, have a huge amount of latitude to do sort of manage the programs within those guidelines. So the, 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 my understanding is the states just can't do whatever they want to do. They have a lot of flexibility within the, the federal guidelines, which I had a little trouble figuring out. Uh, according to Kaiser Health News, uh, in November 2020, under the... Um, Affordable Care Act, the federal government pays 90% of the newly enrolled recipients. And under traditional Medicaid, the federal government pays uh, about two-thirds of the cost. So, uh, again, that's, that's the best understanding I have of how, how the funding works. And I agree with you. I think hopefully at some point we may be able to get a hold of someone who who deals with this in a more detailed way than, than we have and, and, and get some, some hard, hard information about that, how that works. 
Uh, the program is the largest funding for people who are in the low-income uh, individuals and families. The total spending uh, in 2019 was uh, $614 billion. Um, and the federal government is responsible for about 65%, uh, and the state's about 35%. Again, depending on which state and what if you've extended uh, uh, Medicaid expansion in your state or not. And states, states have the option of spending more. I mean, right. they're not limited in what they spend. So, and, and, I, and I wasn't able to... I didn't have time to, you know, you can get on one of these websites and, and go through every state in the union and what their, their Medicare eligibility, funding, coverage, and all those other issues are. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of variability. Um, those who are usually eligible are under age uh, 65. I don't know what's going to happen uh, under the, the current president's proposal to expand uh, Medicare down to age 60, but, but uh, I suspect that uh, those who will be eligible for Medicaid will be under age 60. You have to uh, be under 133% uh, of the uh, uh, poverty level, which uh, is not very much money. Children represent about 38% uh, of the enrollees, uh, and uh, those with disabilities about 14%, which represents about 36% uh, of the total cost. Yeah, as you mentioned earlier, uh, coverage is, uh, there are 71 million. I guess these numbers change depending upon you know, whatever they're taking. Uh, in the U.S. includes children, uh, pregnant women, parents, seniors, um, and folks with disabilities. And there's also different eligibility issues in different states, which is what uh, really makes it kind of confusing. Kentucky, you have to be a Kentucky resident, a U.S. citizen. Uh, you can be a, a legal uh, ill legal, not illegal, <laughs> legal, <laughs> legal alien in need of health care or in insurance assistance uh, with uh, financially low or very low income, uh, pregnant or responsible for an 18-year-old or younger, uh, somebody with a disability or a family member with a disability or a low uh, annual household income. And I've got this table in front of me. And so if you are a single household, then the maximum income level per year is 17000 and change. If there's two of you, it goes up to 23000 and change. Four of you, 35000 and change. Six, 47000 and change. And eight, 59000 and change. So <laughs> trying to figure all this stuff out. It's just fascinating. It's Kentucky. I mean, even got to Massachusetts or Rhode Island or Texas or Georgia. So. <laughs> uh, 
The, the, it also covers uh, most indigent uh, patients uh, in the nursing homes. If you if you're totally disabled and have to go to a nursing home, um, Medicaid will will cover you. But the income level is very low. It's uh, if you're single, it's two thousand three hundred and eighty-two dollars a month. And you only get about $60 of spending money a month. <laughs> so uh, I, don't, I doubt if any one of us could survive on $60 of spending. What are you going to do with the money in the nursing home anyway? I mean, you're going to buy some chocolate chip cookies? Or <laughs> I, don't, I, don't know what, I don't know what the options are in, 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 a, in a place like that. Uh, Medicaid expansion um, was an interesting activity uh, uh, initiated by the Affordable Care Act. And uh, there were um, 39 states plus uh, Washington, D.C. that uh, expanded Medicaid. And 12 states did not. And the implementation um, again, it was different things in different states. Um, some had work requirements. Um, one state raised a tobacco tax in order to pay for expanded services. Um, Governor Bashir won, implemented this in, in um, December of 2019. There was no work requirement. And if you remember when we had... Um, Dr. Voida and Ms. Casey from the from the uh, um, community health center in Phoenix talking about homeless. All the homeless population are covered. Uh, I, I'm assuming they they only deal with uh, um, with Louisville, but I, I'm assuming that that's true throughout the state. Uh, I, it's not something I've I've had a, could figure out any way to you know to verify. So. Um, I mean, this was this was a good thing you mentioned earlier, and uh, um, so you know, the, the, there's the, there's an assortment of, of 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 coverage that ranges from adults from uh, 19 to 64, um, nursing home residents, disabilities, and and Medicare beneficiaries uh, in nursing home or um, Undergoing in, in need of, of uh, uh, personal care services, and uh, again, just to r recognize the limitations of some of the things that we've <laughs> we've talked about. Uh, you know, I, I really just had a, a mind-body-bending time trying to figure out how, how who decides how, how you know who gets covered with what, and. Um, because there are all kinds of waivers and, and other aspects of this that uh, have made it probably one of the most complicated things that we've ever had to, to decided to talk about or discuss here. Well, you mentioned earlier during your practice and mine too that we never had to get involved in this. And I think as a physician, uh, that you only got 24 hours in a day and that You've got to let other people do these kind of things. There's, there's no way that physicians can be involved in all the uh, insurance and uh, 
social aspects of medicine, it not only is it mind-boggling, but there's just not enough time to do that. And I think that's one of the things that um, uh, patients need to understand is that we have to concentrate on the actual practice of medicine. The practice of medicine has become so very complicated that, uh, that most of us have to just uh, emphasize our, uh, our specialty. And I've got a map in front of me. I'm looking at this map that shows the different states that expanded Medicare and, and the ones that have it. So Is that for, Medicaid or Medicaid? I'm sorry. Yes, okay. uh, uh, Mark, thank you. <laughs> you know, I've got a little bit of a brain thing here. Uh, starting from the top, so we got, again, Medicaid expansion, Wisconsin, South Dakota, and Wyoming did not. Kansas did not. Uh, Missouri has adopted it, but it hasn't implemented it, and I'm not sure how that. Texas uh, and the, the South, basically North, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Florida. And uh, I don't know how much is, this is related to um, Medicaid issues as much as it is um, uh, ideology, but uh, many of these states are the states where they're, they're seeing uh, surges of COVID now uh, because they have a very high unvaccinated populations. Well, uh, if you live in those states and you're between the ages of 21 and 65 and you're below the poverty level, then uh, you cannot uh, you cannot get insurance. I mean, you, you can't afford private insurance, and Medicaid uh, cannot cover you. Uh, so if you get COVID and haven't been, or, and you're not vaccinated, then uh, uh, you're in a, a bad situation. You have to go to the hospital, a government hospital, a university <laughs> hospital that um, uh, will take care of you. Um, that, uh, that creates a, uh, a problem that uh, I don't think is acceptable in our society. Now. Well, it's a double whammy in the sense that on one hand you've got uh, these political and ideological beliefs that vaccinations of, for an assortment of different reasons, uh, people shouldn't be taking them. Um, uh, I know this is not what we're supposed to be talking about, but I, I had, my, had my hair cut uh, the other day, and the barber was telling me that, uh, that there are some relatives that have refused to get vaccinated because they're, they're they're concerned that the the with the with the vaccination the government is going to put some kind of a device in them so they can be tracked. <laughs> and I'm looking looking at my cell phone. <laughs> wants there to track you go. You. All I have to do is look at your cell phone. So uh, that's what I was thinking about yeah, your cell phone. Well, well, now let me. Uh, there different states have done different things, and as I was kind of scrolling through all the different activities that the of the different states. Uh, during the, and I don't know when, during the Trump administration, the, the state of Georgia privatized Medicaid. 
And so I was trying to figure out what exactly, how did this, so what they did, apparently uh, now they allow uh, private health insurance companies to administer the state Medicaid program. Um, and I guess that's what we, you know, the other states are doing in <clears throat> kind of different ways. Um, they used to have a website where this, the webs, like the website we've had here, and the, the, there's, what is it, healthcare.gov, uh, where the, an individual could go uh, to a single site to determine um, eligibility issues, which as we've already discussed in some vague way, it can be really very tra very <clears throat> very complicated. So this website <laughs> was taken down, and each of the insurance companies then uh, set up a separate site with a specific program offering, and the programs that they offered were, were, were all different. And so you had you had this this already complicated process where you could go to one website and try to navigate your way through all of the eligibility issues of, 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 of your, your, your income status, your disability status, whether there is six or three or two members of your family who's pregnant and all, and all of these other issues. And that, that process is now incredibly more complicated because it's gone. And it, it, to try to figure out how to get from one website to the other website to the other website, and if you think about it, many of the people in the, in the Medicaid population are older. They're, uh, if they have computers at all, their computer skills are probably uh, uh, more basic than maybe some others, and it's just a, an amazing example of how, at least in my opinion, not to manage a program like this that's providing, trying to provide health care. Well, you mentioned uh, managed, and in uh, 1980, uh, the federal government started allowing uh, Medicaid go to managed care, and now... Uh, I think uh, most of the Medicaid uh, programs are under managed care, and the state of Kentucky is. And I don't know exactly how that works. I know that uh, it's been bid twice, and it's now in court again over how they bid it. But it's my understanding that the, that the state of Kentucky doesn't really run uh, the Medicaid they contract it out with a for-profit company who manages it, and the state gives them money to manage them. So uh, we are now seeing uh, private uh, insurance companies getting into Medicaid, and I've got an article here that says that uh, Medicaid insurance insures a growing competitive force in the ACA marketplace, and the Medicaid uh, uh, managed care are becoming uh, more and more competitive with other insurance. So uh, it, this could be a good thing in that uh, we have Medicaid managed care competing with other private insurance. And another article I read said that uh, the the, uh, the cost of insurance was going down, 
and that the Medicaid uh, uh, managed care was doing a good job and 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 charging less than than the other for uh, not-for-profits. So uh, I think one of the, our goals should be if we uh, get a, an expert to come to talk to us about this and tell us how this works and how how is the marketplace uh, playing out in this issue. No, I agree. I'm going to read something that I got off <clears throat> one of the websites that I, <laughs> I looked at. <laughs> I wanted to bang my head against the wall after I was reading this and maybe see, see what you think. Okay, it says here, Medicaid managed care organizations, parentheses, NCOs, close parentheses, provide comprehensive acute care and in some cases long-term services and supports to Medicaid beneficiaries. MCOs accept a set per member per month, accept a set per member per month payment for these services and are at financial risks for the Medicare services specified in the contracts. Do you have any idea what that means? I mean, it sounds to me like they are, that they, 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 a set per member per month payment. Now, presumably that's coming from the federal government, the state government, and then they supposedly are at financial risk. I don't know what I, I just don't know what this means. Well, I do know they're at financial risk because I know there was a company several years ago in Florida that uh, that went bankrupt uh, because they couldn't meet the uh, uh, needs of the uh, of their Medicaid patients. So the these Medi Medicaid managed care organizations, the states. Um, the federal government fund funds uh, whatever amount that they fund. We like we said somewhere between ninety percent and sixty five percent. The states administer and design these Medicare programs within um, the the federal rules or the federal guidelines. And um, the information that I was was looking at as of. Uh, July of 2019, there are 40 states and Washington, D.C. that uh, contract with comprehensive risk-based managed care organizations to provide care. And um, I'm not exactly sure what that meant. So when I looked on a little further, this uh, a different website indicated that there are 17, and this is 2018, and I'm not sure what the situation is today. This is some years ago. 17 managed care organizations. They were non-profit, for-profit, and government-run. Six of the for-profits were United Health, Centene, an organization that I've not heard of before, Anthem, Molina, another organization that I haven't heard from. These are all for-profit health companies or managed care organizations, Aetna and WellCare. And um, <laughs> of, in 39 uh, of these um, managed care organization states, uh, 
there are 500, there are Fortune, Fortune 500 companies in, in this Medicare organization, uh, Medicaid market. So, uh, you, you know, you're absolutely right. We, we've reached a situation where the, you know, Wall Street has gotten into another supposed uh, health coverage program for the disabled and the poor. And uh, my question is, what do they get out of it? And I can't find that out. What is the benefit of United, Anthem, and Aetna? Because these people aren't doing this for you know humanitarian reasons. They're not. They don't provide health care. They are. They are selling insurance policies, and then trying to figure out how to keep as much as the money, and not providing health care. Well, the answer to your question is money. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, no, I understand, but how how does how how does that work? You know, we talked about this earlier when I when I was a faculty member at the University of Louisville. Uh, the U of L was was self-insured, and they would they would design the program, they would fund the program, and then they would would contract with a, a health insurance company to administer it, and they paid them a fee. Uh, we talked in one of an earlier programs about uh, 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 you know hedge funds managing nursing homes. Uh, it's a different situation. A hedge fund buys a, a, a nursing home chain. They want to get return on investment of 10, 15, 20 percent over two, three or four years and then try to sell it and, you know, move on to something else. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still I'm trying to I couldn't I can't figure out how or why either how or why. These for-profit companies. I know money is the, the issue, but how how do they how do they get it? Now I don't know exactly how they get it, but I can tell you that Centene uh, is almost all their work is in Medicaid. They started off that way. They've expanded a little more uh, in private insurance, but and Melina is the same way. Uh, Centene has even uh, gotten into the healthcare market in Spain and England in certain aspects. Uh, they, I don't think they really want you to know how they do that. <laughs> well, of course they don't. <laughs> I mean, that's what you'd like to know. Uh, you know, how do they? What? What? What's the process? I mean, I know what the process was in at with U of L. In in uh, in the way that 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 program uh, worked, and and U of L was also self-insured when it came to uh, medical liability insurance, because for the same reasons. Uh, well, let me just read to you three headlines here. All right. Expanding Medicaid creates significant business opportunities for insurers operating Medicaid managed care plans. Number two, expanding Medicaid would result in lower coverage costs and more stable private insurance market, which would benefit insurers who are only participating in the private market. And three, Medicaid expansion would allow insurance to better manage care effectively and efficiently. Now, that, that <laughs> this doesn't make sense because these people are not into it to provide health care. I mean, we've, we've talked about for-profit insurance companies on two or three occasions, and 
the the goal is very clear. Their goal is to to you know to use all money for all sorts of reasons, from overpaid CEOs to buying off politicians to advertising. And the end of the day, the at the end of the day, actually paying for health care is called the medical loss ratio. From a business standpoint, this is a medical, a, a financial loss to be paying for the product that you're selling. And so, and, and you're, and so I don't know how the, in, the market is going to benefit the Medicaid market, which is supposed to be a government-funded program to provide health care for people with low-income disabilities and who can't afford, or people with, with uh, you know, Medicare who, who are, need to be in nursing homes and don't need to spend every dime they've got, you know, in the last few years of their lives. So how does that work? Well, I don't know because, as you well know, that most Medicaid patients are very sick. Yeah. It also includes the mentally ill. And uh, how you uh, make money off that is something that we need to look into on our uh, next broadcast on this subject because um, uh, they're doing it, uh, uh, but they have to be uh, rationing or uh, providing uh decreased care in some way uh, are they doing actuarials on patients and are they uh, selecting out certain patients that they're going to insure they're not going to insure I don't think they can do that uh, under uh, Medicaid regulations but uh, they're 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 doing it somehow and more and more insurance companies becoming uh, really interested. You know, the the federal funding, one of the federal funding rules, guidelines, standards, whatever you want to call them, is budget neutrality. So that they, they not, they're not, the federal government won't spend any more money. You know, the state can design whatever plan it wants. So the only way that I can rationalize that these for-profit insurance companies can make any money is by not providing care. Now, they may not provide care by reducing the services. It may affect the, the, the timing of the services. It may affect the eligibility but I, I just, there's just no, this doesn't, you know, this all this, this is a two and two makes five kind of equation. And I, uh, unfortunately, I'm not smart enough. And I don't think you and I have got enough of the, of the sort of technical uh, know-how to figure out where it is. But there's got to be some explanation for why these, these companies are in this marketplace. Well, guys, if you look at the Affordable Care Act and how that has been a, a real bonanza to private insurers, because it's uh, the feds will subsidize much of the insurance premiums for folks who uh, receive their insurance under the Affordable Care Act. Um, and... You know, it's uh, this is a 
it's is, uh, is, it, is, is it part of the same um, same game that it's I, a guaranteed uh, income stream? I don't think it's guaranteed, but I think that's going on. They're subsidizing it, and if they start losing money, they're putting more money into it. No, um, wait, wait, wait. So, tell, tell me that again. I'm, I'm still I, I'm not I, connecting. I just like it. the ACA. Yes, and I agree with Mark that, 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 of that. But this, the way I understood it, the funding process of Medicaid is the federal government's portion. One of the, the, the you know, one of the aspects of it is eligibility. You know, you ha it has to be for low-income people, for disabilities, and there's a number of other categories. The, 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 other, the, other, the other component of it was coverage. Um, you had to cover enough certain things. These were, the, these were the federal government's guidelines or standards. And I can't remember there's another one in there. And then there's, there is budget neutral, so that if the government is spending... I think I mentioned earlier that it was that 90 percent of the new new uh, signing on with under the ACA expanded ACA was covered by by the the federal government and the traditional Medicaid it's about 65 percent. So then it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't add up. Because it, it, it well, if it's budget neutral, it's got to be budget neutral. So it means that there's no more money coming in. They have to figure out way, ways not, which is what they do, is to not spend the money they're getting on health care. And they're very good at that because that's, that's why they've got so much, so much money. Well, I think under the ACA, they are, are actually subsidizing some things. Is that true, Mark? Now we're talking yeah. about Medicaid, or or, or we, we, well, have we gone past Medicaid now to something else, or we're no, still talking about Medicaid. Well, just with the ACA, um, if a person is under a certain uh, income, then they the feds will pick up whatever the balance of the premium that's that's going to the um, uh, private insurance company. Uh, you know, the individual might be paying a hundred dollars a month, and the the federal subsidy might be five hundred dollars a month. Right. So, uh, you know, Gene, getting back to what you were saying early on, the the coverage, how how many people are coveraged, uh, covered? Uh, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities uh, in um, in April of 2020. They said that in 2018, 97 million low-income Americans are insured under the Medicaid program. I mean, 97 of, what are we, a country of like 360? I mean, no. hell, that's one out of every four yes, that's uh, true. Americans are under Medicaid, and oh, hell yeah. The people are rubbing their hands together and saying, hey, we can make some money here. Right. Uh, there's, there's been other good things that have happened in the Medicaid expansion. Oh, for sure. For example, um, a lot of rural hospitals are um, are doing much better. Definitely. A, a lot of uh, hospitals that take care of poor people, like the university hospital, are uh, doing uh, much better. 
and, and there are other things that Medicaid covers that we don't think about. For example, if you have a, a child that's disabled and needs physical therapy or speech therapy mm -hmm. or special mm -hmm. care, mm -hmm. Medicaid will reimburse the school system for that. They also pay for daycare and people who uh, who have uh, special needs. Uh, they they pay for uh, in individual housing. Of course, the trend now is to put people uh, who have brain injuries or other uh, uh, mental issues in a, in, how, in private housing where someone stays with them 24-7 mm -hmm. and they go to uh, uh, daycare in, uh, in, the, in the daytime. Uh, Medicaid uh, reimburses for all that. So it, it's really been a lot of uh, uh, good things have coming out. Of well, I, I, I don't. There's no. I'm, I'm not questioning that. Again, we're, the issue that I still don't figure out is this fundamental question of you've got these for-profit health insurance companies whose goal is to make as much money as possible, okay. uh, not necessarily providing health care, and so they sell insurance. Uh, uh, policies that that can range from you know very expensive, very good policies to cheap policies that don't cover anything. You know, you get you get sick, you go bankrupt, and and then and 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 they you know they they use the money for an assortment of different things. We've talked about this a, a bunch of times, and and then at the end of the day, their their the actual payment of the the health coverage is considered a business loss, and you can jump through all the hoops of the pre-authorization and the 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 extra pay, the coverages, the out-of-pocket expenses, yada the yada the yada the, and again, I'm still trying to get my head around how the Medicaid marketplace. Is is beneficial to the for-profit insurance companies? How how because I've said this before, just a few minutes ago. The only way they seem to be able to do this is by not paying for health coverage. Well, I think right now the the states are putting more money into it, and the federal government is. I I think the problem is going to be is that uh, one of these days they're going to reach a saturation point, and particularly when equity companies uh, uh, get involved. You know... Uh, well, they're already involved in these yeah. medical managed care organizations. Right. Medicaid managed care well, organizations. Well, now, most of these are not equity companies, like WellCare, uh, the ones you just mentioned. They're mm -hmm. not. But the, the, the equity companies are not regulated. They can go in and... Uh, uh, buy out a, uh, uh, like an anesthesia practice, and uh, the anesthesiologists don't have much say. I, I read about a company that they fired all the anesthesiologists and hired nurse anesthetists. Uh, another thing that can happen, they can buy a nursing home. They take out huge loans against that nursing home, and, uh, and then they cut down on the quality of care. And... Uh, after about four or five years, they try to sell it, and and the stockholders 
will we'll get that money that they borrowed, and uh, the facility uh, uh, will will end up owing the debt. So uh, it's a very complicated system, and I think we got to be very careful how this is done. Well, I, I hope that we can get someone who has enough um, um, specific knowledge of how these programs work to, to help <clears throat> me understand how, how this, this process of having uh, a set of rules budget neutrality, eligibility rules, coverage rules uh, established by the federal government, found the, the, the sort of foundation, allowing states the flexibility to, to, to uh, administer these programs. The state then hires Aetna, an organization uh, designed to, to establish to extract as much money <clears throat> out of the healthcare system as they possibly can to, <laughs> to run this government-funded program to provide healthcare coverage for people who are, are, are with low income and disabled. It's this, you know, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I guess it's what it sounds like. It all doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And and, uh, uh, and these aren't equity companies buying um, um, a hospital or a, a clinical practice or a nursing home. These are supposedly working within the framework of, of the limitations of the federal government. And maybe you're right. Maybe the states are, are ponying up more. I suspect that what's going on here is if you can get into the details of it, they have figured out ways – to to either uh, limit the co that what that's how they provide that's what they all their health care issues have to do with uh, either making people pay more th than than the premiums or not getting coverage well I know one thing they are doing uh, and that is they're really emphasizing outpatient care that saves them a huge amount of money and they are really emphasizing to primary care physicians to keep these patients out of the hospital. Most patients are, who are on Medicaid who have diabetes or, or have hypertension, they're now being seen by their primary care physician every three months. And they don't just go in, you know, you know when they're feeling bad like it used to be, they are required to go in and they check their sugars and they check their blood pressure and they're, they're required uh, to follow up. Uh, and the purpose is to keep them out of the hospital. I guess a question I have is, are these insurance companies beating down the providers, the doctors and their practices on the reimbursement rates? For Medicaid uh, patients, I don't know if that's true or not. I can tell you, uh, right now, what I've personally seen is that most of the patients seem to be very happy. The insurance companies are making great effort to make patients happy, and it seems like that the that the doctors are very happy. Most of the Providers in South Central Kentucky, though, 
our nurse practitioners. Okay, I, I just, um, See, you, you know, whether a practice will decide whether to take Medicaid patients or not um, because of reimbursement rates. Well, in I, the I past, in, in the past, uh, most practices would not take Medicaid patients uh, because, because of the low reimbursement. Uh, I think that's changing a little bit. Uh, particularly with nurse practitioners and uh, particularly uh, with uh, mental health and also uh, suboxone clinics. Now, when I was in private practice, which was, I, I joined the university faculty in the mid-80s. This was before, I mean, the, the for-profits uh, health insurance companies, uh, you know, they broke out in the early 90s. So uh, I, I had left that marketplace where I had to sit down and worry about, you know, what, you know, who was, you know, what, how much money I was bringing in. I ended up in a practice with 40 other people. I didn't have to worry about not, you know, whether uh, my time was being well used on a Medicaid patient. Uh, I just treated everybody who walked in the door. I was really happy to be able to do that and not have to deal with those other things. And whatever, you know, whatever I made in the course of a month, that's what I made. I, I, you know, I, I had all of these, you have all these other activities of putting talks together, doing clinical research and, uh, you know, all of those other, other activities with national organizations. So, uh, I, you know, I didn't have that experience of having to struggle through uh, the difference between the declining uh, revenue from a Medicaid patient versus somebody who had private insurance? Well, I can tell you that uh, if you have, t uh, in, at least in the past, if you had too many Medicaid patients, you could not meet your overhead. Uh, and a lot of people would, would take so many Medicaid patients and then they would stop. And if you were a patient, like, for example, I had this happen multiple times, and I think it's still going on. If, if a Medicaid patient came in and with an appendicitis and you operated on them, sometimes it was extremely difficult to find someone to take care of them as primary care because of the reimbursement. Well, if you're looking, if you're a Medicaid patient looking to get a facelift somewhere or breast implants or something, right, a plastic surgeon, they don't even take they don't even take private insurance much. Like you got to, you got to. I, I, when I, I was in, I was in. I got to tell you a story. Uh, I, I did my general surgical residency at the University of Maryland, and the, the fellow who was a, a chief resident two years ahead of me whose name I won't mention, went up to Michigan and did a plastic surgery residency. And then he went out to San Diego and uh, he, uh, he established his practice. It was, a, it was a mostly in, a, in, a, in an outpatient facility. And he explained to me once that, well, he, 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 he was in this building and there was a bank in the building. 
and and he had worked out this arrangement with the bank, and so the pe- people would come in and they they'd want to do a facelift or a lip some kind of get your nose shortened or lengthened or whatever you're going to do or liposuction whatever whatever they were going to do, and then he he would they would send them down to the bank and they would work out some sort of financing and he would have this done. I mean, this is just good this is good business, but it didn't have anything to do with the practice of medicine, and so. Uh, you know, if you're you're in one of those situations, um, you know that's that's what. I, I guess we don't have. To, I, I wanted to talk about Medicaid buy-in, but we're 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 running short on time. I would suggest that this is uh, part one of. I don't know whether it's going to be two or three, but there's a lot of things to talk about here. There's a lot we don't know, and um, I would suggest that we. Uh, maybe give it some time, uh, see what we can do about finding some uh, non-medical person, some administrative person who's got the, uh, the skills to deal with these things and talk about this again. Uh, I got one more point. I know of a hospital, which will remain nameless, who, <laughs> who used to make patients with real medical problems go to the bank and borrow money before they would t- take them in and do elective surgery, et cetera, on, on a significant problem. Well, that's it. That's a good. That's not a good point to end on, but that's where we are. <laughs> okay, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Shane. <laughs> I'll be glad to loan you some yeah. money. <laughs> Let me skip on down to the bank before my appendix bursts. <laughs> But I hope to see everyone uh, over at the Mazzoli Federal Building Saturday morning, 11 o'clock. Join us for the uh, celebration for Medicare's 56th birthday. For more information about single-payer health care and some of this info, go to kyhealthcare.org. That's kyhealthcare.org. Guys, pretty interesting show. More to come.